welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. I'm so glad that you're here. Bring open your Bibles. Philippians chapter 2. If you're in the venue, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. You'll see the first word is therefore. I'm, I'm reading from a New King James translation. People ask me, what are you reading from? New King James translation, therefore. If you see that word therefore, you ask yourself, what is it therefore? Because it connects the verses preceding this. You do know that when the letter was written, Paul didn't write chapter 1, verse 1. Those were added many, many years later for us to be able to reference things quickly. Paul has already talked about our conduct and the way that we live for him. And then he says, therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any com comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy... Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Sunday school teacher in a children's classroom was showing pictures of various circumstances and asking the children to maybe associate a verse with that picture. She first showed two children hugging one another, and one of the children said, love one another. She said, very good. She then showed a picture of a little girl that was sitting in front of her mom listening to her, and, and one of the children said, children, obey your parents. And she said, that's very good. Then she held up a picture of two boys pulling on the opposite ends of the same cat. And kids looked at it for a while and couldn't think of anything. Finally, one little boy said, what God has joined together, let not man ever separate. <laughs> God brings us together as a church. And it's one of the few things that we're told in the Scripture to guard the unity. And as we move into chapter 2, we quickly discover these verses are a continuation of the previous verses. And apart from believing and teaching sound doctrine, nothing is more essential to the health and well-being and ministry of a church as unity is. Paul gives some reasons for unity. The first I call your attention to, I call it the premise or the foundation of unity in verse 1. And you'll notice the word if, if there's any consolation. Well, that word literally means since. It's not the possibility of it happening. It means since there's consolation and so forth. We ought to stick together. Reminds me of an old Old story about a sailor and a landlubber went fishing. While they were fishing, the landlubber hooked onto a big fish, so big that it was actually pulling the boat around. About the time he got into the boat and was going to make 
the, the attempt to get it in the boat, the fish made one final jerk or lurch and pulled the landlubber over in the water, and he couldn't swim. He starts flailing around in the water, asking the sailor to help him. Sailor reaches down. All he can grab is the hair, and wouldn't you know it, he's wearing a toupee, and it comes off. <laughs> he's still flailing around, so he grabs an arm, and wouldn't you know it, his guy has an artificial limb, and it comes off. So he grabs a leg, and sure enough, it's got a prosthetic leg. It comes off, and the guy's going down saying, help me, help me, I'm drowning. And the sailor said, I would if you would just stick together. <laughs> the church has got to stick together. The tense and the verb and the form used here assumes something is true. Sense would be an accurate translation. Since there is consolation, since there is comfort. And you'll notice four things right there in verse 4 that talks about the premise, why should we be unified? Why, when you don't know half the people in this room and you don't know half the people in this church, why should we be unified? Well, here's four reasons. First of all, is consolation in Christ. The word consolation is the same word parakletos, parakletos. The word paraclete in John chapter 14 through 16 talks about the Holy Spirit. It means to come alongside, to comfort, to encourage. And then he uses the word in Christ, which indicates all the connections and experiences in Jesus Christ. Now think about it. Have you been encouraged or comforted by Jesus Christ? You have, haven't you? I mean, think about it. When, when you first, when you received Jesus, you, there came a time in your life when you realized you were lost. You were separated from the Lord, and you had no hope because of your sin. And you asked God to forgive you, and you believed in your heart that Jesus died for your sin. God put your sin and my sin on him, and you, he rose again, conquering death, and when you place your faith according to Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, you believe in your heart, place your faith in Jesus Christ. God immerses you in the righteousness of Jesus. And can you remember the comfort you felt by knowing that you now you were going to heaven one day when you died? And that God didn't hold your sin against you anymore. And that when he looks at you, he looks at you as if you had never sinned. That's what justification is, just as if I'd never sinned. And the comfort that you have knowing that when you come in here, not based on your church attendance, not based on your good works, not based on anything you do, but based on everything that Jesus has done for you and me. You're part of his family. You have comfort in Christ. Amen? Now, everyone else in this room has the same comfort you do. Everyone in this room is loved by the Lord. Everyone in this room has come to salvation the same way. Maybe not the cir same circumstances, but the same way you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul said, every one of you have been saved the same way. You're part of the family. And since there is comfort, encouragement in Jesus Christ, be unified. Guess what? Every last one of you in here is God's favorite. Now think about it. You don't know everyone's name. 
Think about the people, that, and, but you still love them. Think about the people that you meet in other countries, you meet in other parts of the state, in other parts of the world, and you find out they're believers in Christ. You immediately, you immediately have the same connection with them because of the consolation, the comfort that comes through Christ. He also mentions the comfort of love. Parathumion, which is an active word, refers to the tender persuasiveness of love. It means to come to the side or comfort. Here the word comfort speaks of strength. The comfort, the strength of love. He says if your love is strong, it's real for one another, then unity will come naturally. When you love other people, there's unity involved. It doesn't mean that you always agree. It doesn't mean that everything's the, the, the same between you as far as what you like and they like and dislike and so forth, but, but there's a comfort in knowing that the love you have for one another brings unity. We're family. I have a brother three years younger than me. His name is Jerry. I have a sister nine years younger than me. Her name is Lisa. Lisa was nine years younger, so she didn't really come into play as far as social interaction other than she was just in the way. (laughs) But Jerry, on the other hand, three years younger than me, we had a lot of social interaction that brothers have. Some of it not so good. But I will tell you this, he and I might fight, but you better not mess with him because he's my brother. And family, blood's thicker than water. Is that the old term you use? He's family, and I loved him, even though I disagreed with him at times, and, but I still love him. Too many churches today don't have a genuine love among the people. All they can focus on is their differences, and, and sin sometimes breaks the unity. But if a church doesn't have love for the Lord and love for one another, then there will not be unity. And I hear people say sometimes, you know, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. You cannot say that. Now, if you're thinking of a specific church assembly, a church is not a building, and, and there are local bodies of believers, but don't you ever say that you love Jesus, I just don't love the church. Paul would say, you can't say that because the love of God's people between each other, you love God's people. Amen? Yeah, they got warts. They got flaws. Trust me, I know. I am one. But you have a love between you that only comes from the Lord. That's why 1 John 4, 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. Or John 15, 12, this is my commandment that you love, have loved one for another as I have loved you, that you love one another as I have loved you. He gives a third reason, the communion with the Spirit. If any fellowship of the Spirit, koinonia is the word fellowship, is such a rich word. It means participation. Paul was referring to our participation with the partner or with our partnership with the Holy Spirit. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Holy Spirit is the unifying 
power or essence that a church has. When you gave your life to Christ, God put in you and me his spirit. We're a body, soul, and spirit. Our spirit had died. When Adam and Eve sinned, their spirit died. It affected their soul, eventually their body. When you accept Christ, God puts his spirit in you, gives you life. Jesus said, I've come to give you life that you might have it more abundantly. That affects your thinking. Then eventually we're going to get a new body. But I want you to think for a moment. God does not portion out his spirit. The same Holy Spirit that's in you is in me. And in everyone else in this room who's accepted Jesus as their Savior. We are joint participants. We have fellowship with God's Spirit and with one another. But if we allow sin to come in our life and cloud our vision, it creates division. But as we walk in the Spirit and an awareness of the Lord in our life and God's will, we're going to follow His lead. And you like to be where the Spirit of God is at work and moving. And a fourth reason is mentioned, it's a compassion of heart. He said in verse 1, any, if any affection and mercy or bowels and mercy, depending on your translation of the Scripture, it literally speaks of our tender mercies for one another. It refers to tenderheartedness. Because of our common humanity, we immediately feel, we, we feel empathy for other people. Now, the world can do that. Those outside the church can. They can feel empathy or, or, or sorry for someone and want to help them. But in a church, it's even magnified more because we've been shown such tender mercies by the Lord himself that when we see somebody hurting in our fellowship, we want to come alongside them. We want to help them. And, when, and, and there's, there are... There's nothing like it in a church. I mean, I'm telling you, I see God's people loving and coming to the aid and helping one another. And Paul, he's saying these four things. Here's the premise of unity in your church. You want to know why you can get along or you want to know why you're bound with other people that you might not even know their name or you may never have seen them before. He said, first of all, the comfort you have in Jesus Christ. The comfort you have in the love for him and the love for one another, the fellowship of the Spirit and the tender mercies, the compassion that you have for others. That's why Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In other words, you've got a lot of reasons to feel unity and, and, an, and a, a, a compassion and a camaraderie, I guess is the right word. And you know what? There are people who come in every week who are looking for that. They want to know if somebody cares. Now, in verse 2, he gives a picture of it. Here's the bottom line. Here's the foundation. Here's the premise for it. But now notice what it looks like. He said, where unity is present, harmony of, of believers is going to be revealed and evident. There are three words that sound a lot alike. You have the word union. You have the word uniformity. And you have the word unity. Union just means joining something together. You can tie two cat's tails together and throw them over a clothesline and you've got a union. 
but you're not going to have unity. Okay, that's a picture for you, isn't it? <laughs> and then there's uniformity. Uniformity comes from the outside where the, we call it peer pressure, where everybody tries to look the same and talk the same, and, and then we want uniformity. But unity comes from within. And it, it means we have the same spirit and the same Lord, and we're not brought together by rules. We're not brought together by threats. We're together because of the Holy Spirit, the Lord that lives in us, that binds us automatically with someone else. There's unity. Our personalities remain. We, we keep our personalities. We still have likes and dislikes that may not go with someone else. But there's a unity because it comes from within. And in that picture, he says, first of all, one mind, be like-minded. The picture is two clocks striking at the same time. One mind doesn't mean that we're clones and that we all think the same, except for certain things. I mean, we ought to be all one mind when it comes to who Jesus is and who salvation is in and who the Lord is. And, and salvation is by grace through faith. We are justified by faith, trust. We're of one mind. Doesn't mean we like the same color of a carpet. We doesn't mean we like the same foods and all of that stuff. That's not what he talks about, My one mind. One mind is we've got one goal, and that is to follow the Lord and to bring as many other people into the, the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's our mind. That's what we're about. That's a church. Can we disagree on some peripheral things? Yeah, we can. When I call them peripheral things, it's something that you can't be ex completely dogmatic about. But I'm going to tell you, you can be dogmatic about salvation. And you can be dogmatic about the exclusivity of Jesus. He's the only way to be saved. Period. Church does not save you. The church does not grant you forgiveness. The church does not absolve you of anything. The head of the church does, Jesus Christ. One love, he talks about. There's another way of saying that you have a deep commitment to love one another, no matter the personality or the physical Issues, differences, in fact, the word the apostle chose is the word for commitment, total commitment in verse 2, being like-minded, having total, totally committed love, the same love. It means that we love people for who they are, and we even love them on the days that they're difficult to love. This level of love shows the world that we've been changed by the very love of God. See, the world, without Jesus, loves people who love them. But demonstrating this level of love will indicate to the world that we are his children. We, we love people in spite of their differences, in spite of their faults. Because Jesus loves everybody. I told you a minute ago, you're God's favorite. When you came in this room, you didn't come in here to make God love you more. Maybe you thought you were going to get extra credit. 
Now you have to come at eight o'clock to get extra credit. <laughs> I'm kidding. Wednesday night, oh yeah, lots of credit there. <laughs> you see, the love that God has for us is so hard for us to fathom. He, he knows everything about you. He knows what you think. He knows what you thought, what you think, and what you're going to think. And still loves you. And Paul said one of the pictures is being of one mind and having the same love that God has for you to extend it to other people. Aren't you glad God doesn't love you based on how you look? Or based on how you act? Or based on your background? That's how we love one another. And then he says you're in one accord, being of one accord. It means... A soul with a soul. Now, I wanted to use the word soulmate, but a lot of people equivocate that with falling in love. I found my soulmate. Well, that, this word literally has that connotation, but it's not in an emotional kind of love. It's not anything like that. It's the fact that we are together. We know each other, and we know the Lord loves us, and our souls are knit together because of the Lord Jesus. A good example is being a married couple. When you've been married for a long time, you learn all the behavior about your spouse. You know their likes, their dislikes, you know their, their moods. And, and when you spend time with one another, you can talk to each other without saying words sometimes. Do you ever know men when your wife is mad at you? <laughs> Did she even have to say anything? Uh-uh. Vice versa. My wife is sitting over here. Her name is Laura. In case you don't know who she is, she's right here on the front row. We've been married 45 years. Sometimes she'll text me and she'll say, do you want a sonic drink? All I have to do is say yes. She already knows what I want. Same with her. If I'm going to get her a drink... Sometimes I have to ask because it's always narrowed down to one of two. But most of the time it's one. But I use that as an example to let you know that to be one accord means that you have a group of people who know each other. Now, how do you do that in a church with as many services as we're having, three in here and two in the venue? How do you do that? Well, you hear me time and time again say you need to get in a life group, a, a Sunday school class. That's the same thing. It's like a little church under the roof of this, build, of this building. They're the ones that will know you more than you would if you just sit in this room. You sit in this room and you leave, you're not ever going to know anybody. You're not ever going to be in a situation where you can be in one accord. You're not going to understand. and You're not going to be there to pray for people and them for you and so forth. You know what? The larger we get, the harder we have to work at being small. I don't know what else to do and say, we're at a quota. Nobody else can join until somebody dies, and then we'll open up a spot for you. 
The Lord keeps bringing people here. And so we're doing our best to stay smaller. But one of the ways that we can be in one accord is when you're in a smaller group, whether it's a life group, that stands for love, instruction, fellowship, and evangelism, in case you ever wondered. It's a Sunday school class. It's a ministry arm of the church. A church is a group of people who know each other. And if you don't ever come, you're not ever going to know anybody. But he also shows a picture of one purpose, of one mind in verse 2. means that amid the many diverse personalities and skill sets of the people within our church and ministries, we maintain a purpose for our church. Unity of purpose will cause you to work harder in the area where you are. We are about one thing, and that is lifting up Jesus Christ and seeing people come to know him and their lives are changed. We're not here to build our ministry. It's not ours to begin with. It's the Lord's ministry. Unity of purpose does not mean that every person working together needs to have the same preferences and the same personalities. With our diversity, God has unified us to get a job done for him. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the body. You know, you are a a lot of diversified parts. Your body is. But you don't consider yourself a part of the body. Well, there goes a good set of kidneys right there. (laughs) Or a good set of lungs. We think of our body as an entirety. Well, the church is that way. It's a body of believers. We all have different personalities, different abilities. And because we're part of the whole... It makes us work that much harder to make sure our job is done because like your physical body, if one part of it gets sick or dies, it can affect the other part of the body and can greatly hinder its effectiveness. In 1981, a man by the name of Herman Ostry and his wife Donna bought a farm about half a mile outside of Bruno, Nebraska, which is a small community about 60 miles east of Omaha. And the property had a creek. It came with a barn that was built in the 1920s, and the barn door was always muddy and wet because of the creek. And in 1988, the barn was flooded. 29 inches of water got in it, and he pretty much had enough. So he decided that barn needed to be moved. Well, he got an estimate from a moving company, and that got him over the hump. I mean, that got him out of the mood because it was so expensive. And, and one night around the table, Ostry commented that if they had enough people, they could pick up the barn and move it, and everybody laughed. But a few days later, his son Mike showed his father some calculations. He had counted the individual boards and timbers in the barn and estimated that the barn weighed approximately 16,640 pounds. And if they put a steel girder under it, it would add another 3,150 pounds, so the total weight would be just under 10 tons. And he said, you know, if you had 350 people to lift, they'd only have to lift 56 pounds apiece. Well, the town of Bruno was planning its centennial celebration in July of 88, 
And so Herman and Mike presented their barn moving idea to the committee, and they decided to make it part of their celebration. So on July the 30th, 1988, shortly before 11 o'clock a.m., they did a quick a quick test lift, which was successfully made. And then as local television cameras and 4,000 people from 11 states watched, which kind of reminds me of church. You got 4,000 people watching 350 people do the work. <laughs> but they picked that barn up and moved it 115 feet south and put it on another foundation. It's amazing what people can do together instead of one. At, a, at another county fair, the townspeople held a horse-pulling contest. The first-place horse moved a sled that had 4,500 pounds. The second-place horse moved a sled of 4,000 pounds. And they wondered what these two horses could do together, so they hitched them together, and the two of them together moved 12,000 pounds, 4,000 pounds more than what they had done individually. It shows what can happen when you've got one purpose. We have one purpose, folks. It's not to entertain you. It's to lift up Jesus Christ and, and have lives drawn to him and lives changed. Now, when you have unity, there's always a danger. And Paul mentions the peril to unity in verse 3. Unity is a fragile thing. In fact, we're told in Ephesians 4, 3, to guard the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He mentions two things that will kill unity. First, selfish ambition. Factions in the church. Selfish refers to a person who's concerned only with their own vested interest, their own selfishness. The story's told about a neighbor to Abraham Lincoln who heard some crying outside, and he went out front to investigate, and he saw Lincoln standing there with his two sons, both screaming loudly, and the neighbor said, what's the matter? Is everything okay? And Abe Lincoln said, just what is the matter with the whole world? I have three walnuts, and each boy wants two. Selfishness in the world. It's, aren't you glad we don't live in that kind of world <laughs> where everybody's just thinking about themselves? L listen, we live in a world that's obsessed with selfishness. Mine, mine, mine. My rights, I have the right. Mine, mine. Don't you tell me what to do. Selfish ambition. And when that comes into the church, you run into problems. Please leave your selfishness in the car when you get out. Come in. Seriously. You don't, there's no room for selfishness. Listen, we're, we're crowded, and, and there's a lot of issues just getting in here, and if you come in with selfishness, you're going to be miserable. But then, then notice the self-glorification when he, he says in verse 3, or conceit. The word means a person who seeks glory for himself but doesn't deserve that glory. They think they're better than they are. It reminds me of a lady who came to her pastor and wanted to confess. She said, Pastor, I have the sin of pride, and every morning I look at myself in the mirror and I realize how beautiful I am. 
He said, that's not pride, that's a mistake. I read an interesting comment. It said, a lot of people are like a balloon. The more their ego expands, the greater the emptiness on the inside. It's not about you and me. It's not. It's all about Jesus and people coming to him. But those two things can kill unity in a church. Selfishness and pride. So, he also says, here's how to preserve it. Notice the preservation. Verse 3 says, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. You know what? If, if you don't maintain unity in a church, it won't accomplish very much. Because where unity exists, the, pro the church prospers. And unless our motivations are correct, we're not going to have it. So what can you do to help preserve unity? First of all, is have humility. Lowliness of mind. It says it doesn't exalt themselves. The humble spirit... The church was urged to place the needs of others above themselves. Rather than acting in pride and conceit, they were to act in humility. And you know what? A lot of church problems would cease if people would stop thinking solely about themselves and start considering the needs of other people. Folks, this is the Lord's church. Because you are the church. I'm the church. We're, we're the church. The building is not the, the, the church. It's where this church assembles. So when God's people come together, we're part of God's people. The Lord is the head of the church. He owns it. We're not here to safeguard our preferences or to promote our agenda. Everything we do should be approached with a desire to exalt the Lord, to edify the church, and to evangelize the unsaved. So don't come in here. You can come in here with the attitude of, well, if it wasn't for me, this place would fold up. The second thing is hospitality. You'll notice... It says, don't look out for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. When you come in, come in with the attitude of what, not, you come in not with the attitude, what can y'all do for me? But come in with the attitude of what can I do to serve the Lord and how can I help? You agree with that? Do you? Because it's interesting how people, they get so wound up in their own self-interest. That's all they can think about. Well, so-and-so didn't do this for me, or they didn't do that for me, and this. In 1953, after 32 years of trying, two men made it to the top of Mount Everest. Mount Everest is 
over 29,000 feet high. The peak of it is in the jet stream. That's how high it is. Sometimes the winds can be 200 miles an hour. The first guys who tried to go up there made several attempts until they disappeared and were never heard of again. Several other attempts were made over that 32-year period. All failed. And then finally, in 1953, two men, Sir Edmund Hillary, who was a beekeeper by trade and an explorer from New Zealand, and his guide, Norgave, who was from Nepal, were the first humans to climb Mount Everest. And what a lot of people don't realize is that while they were climbing in one of the most dangerous parts of their climb, Hillary lost his balance and fell over a deep precipice. Norgay saw what would happen, saw what was happening, and immediately drove his spikes into the, or his pick, his ice pick into the ice and the rock, and just held on, knowing that when that rope got taut, he might be able to hold on to it. And sure enough, the rope stretched out, stopped Hillary. He was able to get back up, pulled Hillary to safety, and they went on to the top of the mountain. When they got back, they tried to make a hero out of Norgay and ask him what he thought about his heroic deed, and he, he had six simple words to say. In fact, these were the only words they could get out of him to say anything. And he simply said, mountain climbers always help each other. There's not a better picture of the church. Christians always help each other. And when we focus on the needs of others and the church as a whole, we have little time to be selfish. The last part of verse 3, but it said, let each esteem others, means do, give due consideration to all the facts, esteem others better, consulting their interests so, folks, the bigger we get, the more selfish we could become. But one of the reasons God keeps bringing people here is because Jesus is lifted up. And I pray that people, when they come across you, find somebody who cared enough to speak to them, to be hospitable. Some of you need to get out of your comfort zone. Some of you are introverts by nature. You're going to have to... Suck it up deep to speak to somebody else. But why would you do that? Because God loves them just like he loves you. Two little boys were talking on the playground. One of them asked the other one, wouldn't you hate to have to wear glasses all the time? And, and one little boy said, no, not if I had glasses like my grandma." She always sees when people are tired or sad, and she knows just what to do to make them feel better. One day I asked her how she could see that way all the time, and she told me it was the way she learned to look at things as she grew older. And after thinking for a minute, the first little boy said, yeah, I guess you're right. It must be her glasses. Well, we know that those glasses are the Holy Spirit living in us. And the only way that you can ever be this way is for you to know Jesus as your Savior because if you don't know Him, you don't have His Spirit living in you. 
And when the Holy Spirit lives within you, the selfishness begins to dissipate, dissipate and selflessness begins to come out. Listen, all we want is for you to know Jesus. And as you grow in him, you can't help but begin to love other people. And so today, if you don't know Jesus, you ask God to forgive you. Turn from your sin. Romans 10, 9 says that you believe in your heart. You confess with your mouth, you believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus, that he was raised from the dead. You commit your life to him. And the rest of us in here know what a comfort that is when he comes into our life. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message.